Listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a World Affairs Council conversation with authoritative voices discussing significant newsmaking issues and individuals. Sponsored by Greenberg Traurig, LLP. Today we are with Elliot Ackerman, who is in Dallas Fort Worth to talk about Dark at the Crossing, his second and latest novel. A journalist, now based in Istanbul, Elliot is a Marine, always a Marine, with five tours in Iraq and Afghanistan where he received the Silver Star, Bronze Star for Valor, and the Purple Heart. And if that isn't enough, he's a former White House fellow. Welcome. Glad you're here. Thanks for having me. Many books of nonfiction have been written by veterans such as yourself. So I'm very interested in what brought you to writing a novel, your second novel, about being in Iraq and Afghanistan and the Middle East. Well, I think, first of all, I view myself as a novelist, and I think you know, that's sort of my chosen art form. So on the one hand, it's sort of, you know, why does a landscape painter not take photographs? I don't know. He's just drawn to painting. But I do think there's something that the novel can do specifically that you might not see in more traditional nonfiction, and that's to really focus on character, to focus on the internal lives of the individuals involved in the story. And so in that respect, I think it's a great medium for dealing with issues, geopolitical issues, issues of war. I think that the novel can really connect a reader to these oftentimes very complex subjects in a way that a book of nonfiction doesn't do, you know, particularly with regards to you know, emotions. Especially now because we're bombarded by headlines and they almost begin to blend together. And I mentioned earlier that I read your book, enjoyed it, and it really touched me. And it pulled on emotions in a, in a, in a way that, that, that surprised me. Why do you think I was affected by the book in that manner? Well, I think in some ways, you know, writing fiction about geopolitical themes is somewhat intuitive. If we think about politics, after all, is the realm of emotions. I mean, our political leaders are trying to inspire us to follow them, to support their policies, and oftentimes that's all playing on emotions. So in many respects, what I'm trying to do in my novels through story and through character is to trace the emotional topography of these very complex geopolitical events. And it's a topography that oftentimes, if you're only catching the headlines, gets lost. You dedicated this book to a man named Abed. Tell us why and who is he? Abed is a friend of mine who was an activist in the Syrian revolution. Uh, he was someone I became very close with when I spent time in Gaziantep or Antep, where the book was set. It just felt right to me to dedicate the book to him because many of the themes that come up in the book were themes that, at least in their inception, were ones that I was discussing with Abed you know, over dinner, over a cup of tea late at night, you know, over a pack of cigarettes. And he introduced you to someone that really became a core figure, in a sense, in your book, didn't he? Yeah, you know, Abed introduced me to a fellow named Abu Hassar, who was a uh, former member of Al-Qaeda in Iraq. And the three of us actually have had a series and continue to have uh, a series of meetings where we'll sit down for lunch. A improbable friendship has sprouted up between the three of us, a Syrian democratic activist, a former Marine, and a former jihadi. We're not that old, but as we kind of move past those experiences and into new chapters of our lives. So you and Abu Hassar were on different sides, I mean. And we, we did. He, uh, he fought for al-Qaeda in Iraq and ran guns and fighters at across the, same the time? border about the same times that I was fighting as a Marine in Al-Ambar province in Iraq. We had that common experience. And what was interesting to me, although I intuited it, it is that even though we fought on opposite sides, 
and at face value you might say we were very different, having that common experience of fighting in the same war bound us together in a way that was more profound in many respects than the fact that we were on, on different sides. Now today at lunch you spoke with members of the World Affairs Council and you used this phrase, ideological dispossession. Mm -hmm. Talk about that for a little bit. Well, one of the things that really became obvious to me, particularly between myself and my friend Abed, who'd been a democratic activist in the revolution, was, you know, Abed had gone out in the streets in 2011 and 2012 to, through peaceful protests, demand democratic reforms to an authoritarian regime. And it's sort of an irrefutable cause. How can you criticize someone for doing that? But that ideology, the ideology of trying to bring democratic reforms to a country that had never known him, left his country in that effort, left his country in ruin. He can't go home. His family has been split up. In some ways, I would say he has been ideologically dispossessed. He doesn't know what to make of that ideology. But when I look at him, I look at my experience in the Middle East. When I left as a Marine to fight there in 2004, really through 2011, and it seems silly to say it now, but ostensibly, you know, I remember what people were talking about in 2003, 2004, 2005. And one of the reasons we were getting engaged in these countries was this notion to bring democratic reforms, democratic change to a part of the world that had never known it before. And that ended in just the same way, in disarray and destruction. And so in, in certain respects, Abed and I are kind of almost strangely veterans of the same war. And our ideologies, bringing democracy to these places, were kind of similar ideologies. And the reason that they had failed, if you think of it, was uh, sort of for the same reason. You know, we, those ideologies were kind of washed up on the rocks of radical Islam yeah. and authoritarian regimes. And that way, you know, we kind of have this connection of being ideologically dispossessed. And since share the same disappointment. And share the same disappointment, exactly. Let's move now to some of the current mm -hmm. events, mm -hmm. nonfiction, if you wish. What do you think should be done about the refugee resettlement? I think these are incredibly complex issues, and I don't pretend to have a clean answer that I could give in three minutes as to what should be done with refugee resettlement issues, because I think it's kind of one of the questions of our time. Mm -hmm. you know, however, I do feel strongly that what's happened with the complete ban on refugees from these seven countries is sort of antithetical to what it means to be American if you subscribe to the idea that the thing that actually makes America an exceptional nation is that we are a nation that is really just built around an idea. Every other country is defined as a group of ethnicities that exist within a defined border. America is defined by its borders, yes, but by all of the people who have opted into this idea of what it means to be an American. And by that notion, you know, some of the most American people I've ever met have never even been to this country. You know, they're Iraqis, they're Afghans, they're Syrians who have this dream of coming to the U.S. because they believe in what the United States represents. And to say that the door is completely shut to those people, I think, is indefensible. Even though beforehand, it's not like the door was wide open before. It was only open, you know, the narrowest of slivers. It was very difficult to get in here if you were from those countries. But to shut it entirely, I don't think it aligns with our values. And what about the refugees that are now displaced in Jordan and elsewhere, Lebanon? Well, I think you really do have a lost generation of Syrians, you know, refugees who haven't been to school in years, families that have been broken up. Sadly, these refugees are being used as a political tool by countries, Turkey, for instance, kind of their holding countries in the West hostage, saying, you know, if you don't give us what we want, we'll send the refugees into France, Germany. You know, for instance, there's an issue right now in Germany where President Erdogan has said he wants to go to Germany to hold a rally for this referendum that's coming up and everyone is asking Merkel if she's gonna allow Erdogan to go hold this rally. She's in a difficult position because 
you know, he has a lot of leverage over her because of all of the refugees that the Turks have taken in. You know, I'd be remiss in our last question not asking you, what do you think about the stability of Turkey and its relations with NATO? And I think it's, I think it's dire. I mean, I think the entire Turkish Republic right now is really in extreme peril. I mean, this referendum will give Erdogan the ability to dissolve the parliament, appoint and fire judges at his will. And what we're seeing is, sadly, I think, the establishment of an authoritarian state. I want to thank Elliot Ackerman for being our guest on Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk. As I mentioned, this is his second novel, Dark at the Crossing. His first novel was Green on Blue. Thanks so much, Jim. Thank you for listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a production of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Subscribe and rate Global IQ Minute on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. For information about a World Affairs Council in your community, visit worldaffairscouncils.org. Global IQ Minute is sponsored by Greenberg Traurig LLP, a global firm with 2,000 attorneys in 38 offices across the globe. Visit the firm at gtlaw.com.